now bracing for an entertainment incursion. Rolling Rockabilly Track Gearing you up with the latest in horror, video games, movies, and TV. Now calling the Avengers for Nick Fury. Nerds, this will be your finest hour. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're breaking down the latest episode of Secret Invasion, plus all the latest news and rumors in Nerd, along with this week in AEW. Also, if that's not enough show for you, make sure to stop by our Patreon, where you can not only help support our show, but also get bonus content like our Best and Worst of the Week show, which we now have over 30 episodes up on our Patreon. Plus, our top-tier patrons also get bonus episodes and countdowns like our Better Late Than Never review of Black Mirror Season 6, and worst Star Wars moments of the Disney Plus era. So after the show, make sure to head on down to our show notes and find the link to our Patreon or simply type in patreon.com slash amazingnerdshow. Oh, and one more thing. You can find The Amazing Nerd Show now on threads. If you use the social media site, make sure to give us a follow to stay up to date with all things A&S. That's at Amazing Nerd Show on threads. But all right, with that said, let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters, we're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning, potential spoilers for upcoming shows and movies ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. All right, so up first with the ongoing writers and actors strike in Hollywood, it seems like Warner Brothers is contemplating some major film delays. With the ongoing strikes, actors can no longer promote their films, even if they're completed already, which we saw happen last week with Oppenheimer's premiere. And because of this, Warner may actually be considering pushing back the releases of some of its upcoming films like Dune Part 2, The Color Purple remake, and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Variety reports that these may be pushed back into 2024 at this point. Um, This would be another big blow for Aquaman 2, as it has been pushed back several times now, along with the Hollywood reporter this week actually claiming that Aquaman 2 has been plagued with reshoots, including different versions that have different versions of Batman making appearances, along with multiple test screenings, as the studio is trying to make the best of it they can, hoping for a success after the diminishing returns of The Flash. I think we've talked about it before on the podcast, but I'm still stunned by, you know, how poorly The Flash did in the box office. Um, I thought you know, Michael Keaton alone returning as Batman would bring in a decent audience, you know, uh, for the film. But man, I mean, I'm hearing now that it's going to actually end up grossing less than um, Green Lantern did from, you know, the you know, 2010, I believe. Wow, what? So, yes, yes. So it's a major, major flop. Um, you know, I mean, once again, I mean, who knows how much of, you know, the whole Ezra Miller um, controversy had to do with the box office or is it due to the film being kind of viewed as a lame duck since we know that the DCU is being rebooted uh, with James Gunn, um, you know, and I, I, I fear the worst for Aquaman, uh, oh, unfortunately, yeah. um, because I, I mean, if Flash didn't do well, like. Uh, you know, with fucking Michael Keaton as Batman, I cannot fathom Aquaman doing better. Um, like they're gonna have to put together one hell of a marketing campaign, you know, to you know make that film a success. Like I enjoy, and this is me as someone who enjoyed the first Aquaman mm. film. Um, I mean, it just seems like them announcing this brand new direction that James Gunn is gonna take DC in. 
um, while they still had so many other films yet to be released that's still kind of attached to the DCEU, um, has really just kind of like damaged any chance that they have um, at the box office. Um, and I don't know if it's just, you know, more of a case of DC being a damaged brand, um, you know, in, you know, moviegoers eyes. Um, cause that, that's kind of what like the Flash's failure makes it seem like, unfortunately, because man, if you told me before this movie was released, like, especially after like the amazing trailers that we got, that it was going to be this major flop, I would call you a goddamn liar. Um, but here we sit with it, I think making under 200 million. I don't know the number offhand, but it, it's definitely a lot less than what they were expecting. So, um, I don't know, man, it's really disappointing as far as, you know, Warner Brothers delaying films. I mean, it sucks, but it is what it is. Uh, if it, you know, means in the long run that the writers and actors get what they deserve um, and it forces the studio's hands. I'm all for it. You know, fuck them. You know, <laughs> I mean, it sucks for us as moviegoers, uh, you know, and as podcasters who talk about movies. But at the end of the day, like, I want to see, you know, the writers and actors get their fair share. So um, it is what it is. And there's rumors right now that even, um, you know, animators are starting to, you know, want to unionize more and good. maybe rise up on their own. So, yeah, good for them. Good for them. I mean, the studios have been greedy bastards for a long, long time. So it's it's about time someone actually calls them out on their shit. Yep, they fucked around. It's time to find out. So for those looking to help anyone in need during the strike, Nerdist News put together a resource page on everything you need to know, which we will have linked in our show notes going forward. All right, up next, we've got an update for the upcoming Star Wars series, The Acolyte. Showrunner Leslie Headland this week claimed The Acolyte will feature more Jedi characters than any Star Wars project to date. In talks with Entertainment Weekly, Headland spoke on how she's excited to tell a story from more of the bad guy's point of view. During a time you know, when the Jedi were essentially in control of the entire institution, she reiterates how the show will follow a former Padawan who helps her former master solve a case influenced by forces more insidious than maybe the Jedi expect. She went on to state how you know, we'll probably see more Jedi than ever before, but you'll also see more morally ambiguous characters than ever in Star Wars content. The show at this time has a 2024 release window, but we will see about that in this current climate. I mean, the more Jedi, the better, but I'm calling bullshit here. I, there's a whole lot of Jedi in Attack of the Clones. Yeah. Right? That whole Coliseum scene. I mean, I understand the society that they might want to show on screen being like Jedi everywhere. Yeah, but maybe. I, um, it, I think full she, on characters. I doubt it. I think she's probably making an off the cuff comment and she doesn't uh -huh. realize the that the internet's full of nerds who are going to actually count how many Jedi there are in her show compared to Attack of the Clones. Now, I hope it's a lot better than Attack of the Clones. Don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Because it is supposed to be taking place during the High Republic period, right? Yes, it's essentially this is the events that, you know, lead to the transition from the High Republic to what we would, you know, the regular Republic. What we saw in the prequels, up. right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe what she's saying is true. I mean, the Jedi are thriving during this period of time, so... 
I guess we'll have to wait and see. I just like that it sounds, you know, like it's going to be somewhere in between what we got with Andor and then maybe a little bit more action heavy because she does in the interview also describe, you know, there's going to be some fights with lightsabers and all that stuff. So maybe it'll be Andor with lightsabers. <laughs> well, moving on, it looks like Netflix's Masters of the Universe movie reboot is officially dead. The Masters of the Universe adaptation for Netflix is no longer in the works as Variety reports this week. Um, it seems that it may have come down to cost as Netflix was supposed to start filming this back in February with a $200 million budget. That you know would later actually become a 150 million budget, and then even go as far as to potentially split this into multiple projects or multiple films, as they were trying to simplify costs as much as they can. And just over time, it started to become you know too costly for Netflix, as they were spending up to 60 million dollars before any shooting even begun to hold its cast and crew to their contracts, as all these things were still being sorted out. So in the end, Netflix just decided this wasn't worth the hassle, especially now not knowing when this can even begin true production here. Now, regardless of this, it sounds like Mattel is still going to shop around the project to other studios. And honestly, like if you're going to do a Masters of the Universe film, you've got to go big. So I'm glad that they're taking it out of uh, Netflix's hands um, if they were, you know, starting to pinch pennies um, in the long run. Motu deserves better than that. Uh, speed of which, we're recording on Thursday, and uh, San Diego Comic-Con is currently going on. Uh, so hopefully next week we'll have maybe some news coming out of it, but there's not many studios involved this year because of the ongoing strikes. Uh, but one thing that did come out, Masters of the Universe, was they actually shared some footage from the upcoming Masters of the Universe Revelation show that is also on Netflix. Um, I was a fan of the series. I know a lot of people weren't, but I enjoyed it. But with that being said, we're not going to comment on footage that we didn't actually see firsthand, mm -hmm. uh, even though there's plenty of summaries out there right now. Uh, but they did actually, uh, but there was some news that came out of the panel. It looks like they've casted Keith David uh, as the voice of Hordak, uh, which to me is just brilliant casting. Um, his, his voice is perfect for that role. Yeah, I'm surprised with like, you know, how often Netflix just cancels series after any type of, you know, dislikes from the controversy from the or that this yeah, controversy. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised that this survived, uh, to be honest. Well, honestly, I mean, Twitter's not the real world. So um, yes, <laughs> because you're right, like if this series wasn't drawing an audience and, you know, making money, they probably would have, you know, canceled the show. But Obviously, it did. So it is what it is. Um, if Netflix does ever, ever gives up the rights to Masters of the Universe, I, I would love to see like Prime Video pick it up because I feel like they would be the right people to make a film and put it on their service and everything. I feel like they would actually handle that pretty well. I mean, and they do have all the money in the world, right? I mean, they, how much mm -hmm. did they spend on that Lords of the Rings series? <laughs> uh, too much. Right? <laughs> I think it's like the most expensive series of all time. It is. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if I could get a Masters of the Universe, you know, series with that kind of budget, hell yeah, I'm all on board. Well, moving on, after the success of Super Mario Brothers, it looks like Nintendo's looking to develop a couple more films using their IP. It was rumored recently that Legend of Zelda was to be Illumination's next big animated project using Nintendo's license, but it seems Nintendo is all in and wants even more than just a Zelda film in the works, as industry insiders at Zippo claim four projects in total are being worked on, from a sequel to Super Mario Bros. and two spinoffs in Donkey Kong and Luigi's Mansion, 
generation to of course the legend of zelda it seems nintendo realized oh we're sitting on a massive cash cow here and decided to capitalize on it finally and as far as a zelda film goes we did speculate um i, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before but we did ask ourselves you know what story would they you know focus on for this film and it seems that they might be going a more mario route with it trying to pull multiple stories, multiple elements from different games at least, into their own you know, story that they create. I don't know, they might be playing with fire there. I know how passionate Zelda fans are about their games. So, you know, doing kind of a hodgepodge of like all the different storylines and trying to like pick and choose like, you know, the best elements for a film might turn off, you know, some hardcore fans, but you know, I could be wrong. Uh, as far as Luigi, they gotta be doing Luigi's Mansion, right? Oh yeah, it's Luigi's Mansion. Because I mean, 100%. right? They 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 tease it even in the film, really. It feels mm -hmm. like so. Um, yeah, and a Donkey Kong movie, huh? I'm not sure if it's going to be exactly the same Donkey Kong that we saw in the film. If it's going to be like an origin story or what? But you know, it's gotcha. So you're saying that it won't necessarily spin out directly from events of the Super Mario Brothers movie that it could just be like a prequel to like Donkey Kong's story. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I guess that can work. I, I don't really know Donkey Kong's actual story. So it is what it is. Um, you know, I mean, Diddy Kong is Diddy Kong supposed to be his son. Like that's, but is, wait, isn't there a Donkey Kong Jr. Though? Is that Diddy Kong? I think that's Donkey Kong. Wait, I think Donkey Kong Jr. Is Donkey Kong's, father what because i think the one in the film is supposed to be his grandfather not his that's, dad that's isn't that cranky kong or something yeah yeah what's i, I it's i'm i don't know <laughs> don't ask me about nintendo i'm not really up on my uh donkey kong lore so uh -huh. <laughs> forgive me uh but yeah i mean we we talked about this for years now that nintendo's like sitting on like a cash cow of content so um, I, I'm surprised that it's taking them this long to actually start like milking it. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, th they must have been so burned by that like 90s Super Mario Brother film that, you know, they, they were just like, <laughs> fuck it. We're not touching any of this. We'll just stick to games and that's it. But obviously there's an audience out there that's like primed, you know, to see these characters in film form. So, you know, give it to them. Actually, quickly before we move on, there were a couple things I think coming out of San Diego Comic Con. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, Amazon Prime announced that the boys spinoff Gen V is going to be coming out September 29th. And they also dropped a poster for the second season of Invincible, and all it says is coming soon. So hopefully that'll be out this year because I know it's been in the works for quite a while now. And well, editor's note and or breaking news, I should say, uh, while editing the show, they put out a trailer saying that the second season will be premiering on November 3rd of this year, which is awesome. And then also coming out of Comic-Con was the release date for Eli Roth's Borderlands film, uh, which is going to be coming out August 9th, 2024. Well, now on to the wonderful world of horror. It looks like we have an update for the upcoming Saw X film. Lionsgate announced this week that Saw X will be releasing ahead of its October date, now with a September 29th release for this year. The film brings back the original Jigsaw in Tobin Bell, as we did get a glimpse in a first look image from Deadline. Um, the film is set to be in between Saws 1 and 2, as John Kramer travels to Mexico for a risky experimental procedure in hopes of a miracle cure for his cancer. 
answer, only to discover the entire operation is a scam to defraud um, the most vulnerable. The infamous killer returns to his work, turning the tables on the con artist in his signature visceral way through devious, deranged, and ingenious traps. So this is like the definition of the in-betweenquel, huh? Um, yes. <laughs> now I saw the picture that they released of Tobin Bell, um, and no offense to him because, you know, time doesn't stop for anyone, but I mean, the dude looks like he's 150 years old. I mean, they're going to try to tell us that this is taking place in between Saw 1 and 2. And I, I know they don't have the de-aging technology that fucking Disney does, <laughs> so it's a bit of a stretch. Um, just do a fucking reboot already. Jesus Christ. Like... <laughs> Would anyone be upset by that? Like, I know there's probably some hardcore Saw fans out there that are living and dying by the continuity that they've, like, created over the last nine films. But at this point, we just want to see Jigsaw do some Jigsaw shit and, like, you know, tear up the downtrodden and some, you know, terrifying traps. Like, come on. Like, it's not that difficult, people. We're overthinking things. If anything, they can do what they've done a million times before and just say it's a copycat killer... No, on the loose, fuck do that. It. You, if they want to the keep the continuity. The problem with the series is that they killed him way too soon. Like, uh -huh. And they've been struggling to fill that role ever since. Just wipe the slate clean and start over again. <laughs> it's fine. Just tell another great story wrapped around Jigsaw tearing motherfuckers apart. Like, that's all we want. I mean, I'm still going to see the movie, so. <laughs> They're just overcomplicating things. Uh, I don't think anyone really gives a shit about the Saw continuity. Or, like, at this point, keep not. track of it. Like, does does the last Saw film count with Chris Rock? Uh, apparently. Uh, at least in the number count, it, it counts. I don't even remember. It, it wouldn't be 10 without it. Did Chris Rock survive that? I don't remember if it's... Cause I, I know, Spoilers I for Jackson. people who haven't seen Spiral. <laughs> Came out, like, two years ago, right? The movie's terrible. Yeah. Uh, so I'm pretty sure Sam Jackson dies, and it was like a trap by him. Like, he was like the, the ultimate, like, Wasn't, killer yeah, in the end. Yeah, he's Jigsaw, pretty much, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I don't, whatever. Like, like <laughs> at this, now I'm overthinking it. Just start over. <laughs> uh -huh. All right, well, last but not least, it looks like we've got a reboot in the works for the classic horror film, Return of the Living Dead. Zombies seem to be back on the rise as Blade Disgusting reports Living Dead Media is moving forward with a reboot of Return of the Living Dead. They claim this picture will only expand on the world created by the original five films and will stick true to the roots and themes of the originals. No word on you know any planned casting or directors at this time, as it is in early pre-production and we are in the middle of a Hollywood shutdown. You know, with the big zombie boom that we had over the past decade, I'm really surprised that we haven't had a reboot already. I mean, next to the Romero zombie films, Return of the Living Dead was like a huge deal for horror fans back in the day. So um, hopefully they've got the right people behind, you know, this reboot and they're willing to like throw some money at it because uh, I think there's a lot of potential there for an awesome film. Well, Christian, as we record this episode, it looks like Disney has gone ahead and dropped the new trailer for the Marvels. She's entangled our light-based powers, so we switch places whenever we use them. Strong theory. You can absorb light. I can see it. And Kamala. Who's Kamala? Hi. She can turn light into physical matter, which I have never heard of. I could totally show you. No! 
All right, so this is the second trailer that we've gotten for the Marvel's film. Um, I don't know. So far, so good. I mean, it looks like it's going to be a lighthearted affair. Uh, we're going up against the Kree again, which is no big surprise. Uh, the villain's name, Christian, is, it escapes me right now. Uh, Bendar? Bendar, right. And there's rumors out there, and these are just rumors, people, uh, but possible spoilers, that she actually might end up being related somehow to Carol. Now, this trailer doesn't hint at that at all, but in the comics, Carol is part Kree, and I believe a couple years ago they introduced a Kree sister uh, for her. So, you know, who knows? You know, I think some people might be connecting some dots, but we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, she's definitely an accuser. She's rocking the Warhammer. She's also somehow gotten her hands on a bangle very similar to Miss Marvel's. And I guess with it, she's entangled the Marvel's light powers. Uh, whatever the fuck that means. But I guess that's why we're seeing them shift places every time they use their powers. Which I guess is going to be an ongoing issue throughout the film. At least that's what the trailer, you know, makes it seem like. Now, I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, this version of the story so far hasn't really made me any more excited for the film. Um, you know, I'm still very interested in it. But I think I'm more excited for the possibilities of their powers, you know, entanglement. What that could possibly mean towards action sequences more than I am, you know, this you know, lighthearted jaunt that this seems to be. Yeah, I mean, the first trailer definitely teases a big moment where they're all like working together in unison using their powers uh against the you know the new accuser um but i'm with you like i think i'm more excited to see the characters than i am about the story they've presented so far mm -hmm. um so hopefully there's more to the film than you know what we've seen so far because honestly like ben dart feels like every other marvel villain we've seen in the past she's trying to get revenge for carol quote-unquote destroying her planet um by destroying all of their planets which i'm not quite sure what that entails <laughs> like maybe carol has multiple homes throughout the universe since she's barely on I earth um, but i think at the end of the day what i'm most excited about though is seeing the newer characters like photon and miss marvel interact with you know carol um we know they've already established that there's some tension between photon and you know captain marvel so like what the hell is all that about um i'm guessing it's probably blip related i mean we know how close you know photon's mom was to carol and you know probably how close she was to carol i mean she was pretty much like family by the end of uh captain marvel so maybe there's some like abandonment issues you know happening here since we know carol was barely on planet you know, over the last, you know, couple decades. And honestly, like, Miss Marvel is probably one of my favorite, you know, new characters that has been introduced to the MCU so far. So that alone gets me excited for the film. Um, now, it is rather jarring to see Nick Fury here. Um, just tone-wise, <laughs> it's so different than what we're getting right now in Secret Invasion, which we're, like, smack dab in the middle of. Um, I'm curious to see continuity-wise, like, exactly where the Marvels takes place. Um, I'm almost assuming it has to take place before the events of Secret Invasion. Because, I mean, some serious scroll shit is going down on Earth right now, so there's no way that he wouldn't be bringing that up to Carol. You know, that that feels like it would be a major plot point in this movie. 
Uh, the fact there's a million scrolls, you know, now on Earth, all because of, you know, him and Carol's neglect to find them a planet. I just don't see how that's not an issue that they don't, you know, tackle in this film. But, you know, that's why I feel like it's going to be, you know, something that takes place prior to, you know, what we're seeing in Secret Invasion. I'm of the opposite thought of I think it's going to happen after Secret Invasion. I think they're just going to sweep everything under the rug in the next episode. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at this point, Christian, but we'll talk about yeah. <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. So, um, but yeah, overall, like I said, it's it feels very lighthearted um, story wise. Yeah, they're not like you know wowing me, but you know I'm invested in these characters so i'll definitely go see it anyway also at this point i hope that it somehow connects to the bigger picture direction wise for the mcu because we got to get this shit going because at this point we, we're pretty deep into the multiverse saga so like this shit does need to start connecting a little here and there i'm hoping we at least get like some follow-up to that like end credit scene that we got in shang chi where we saw carol you know, talk, when they were talking about the signal, the unidentified signal and shit. And I mean, mm. there's a lot of speculation that like Shang-Chi's, um, you know, Ten Rings somehow connects to, you know, uh, Kamala's bangle. So so maybe we see exactly what that connection is, if any. I could, def I could definitely see that being like the after credits because I, I feel like they do need to you know, address that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I've been patient long enough. Let's let's get a move on. Come on, Foggy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, when does this film come out? Uh, this one's coming to you November 10th. And now for the nerds breakdown of episode five of Marvel's Secret Invasion. Spoilers ahead, you have been warned. Consider this a preview, Nick, because if you ever get within 100 yards of the president again, I'm going to make sure you get the whole show. Tell Gravik I'm coming for him. <laughs> Tell him yourself. We join back up with Nick Fury this week as he escorts the president into a hospital after last week's attack. While the president is unconscious though, Fury does his best to break through to him as the president gets gurneyed off. Fury tries to warn him of Rhodey being a scroll, but the nurse staff there you know, makes sure that Fury waits outside of the OR area as he doesn't have clearance to be there. I know we have the scene where like Fury is like desperately trying to communicate to the president as he's like unconscious what the hell's going on but you're telling me like he doesn't have the president's phone number like at this point like he can't send him an email or a text message or something to make sure he gets the fucking message or even write a goddamn note and pin it to his fucking hospital gown <laughs> like there's got to be a way to get a message to you know the president i mean it's nick fucking fury so i'm just surprised that he got as far as he did with you know the president's like all the way to the hospital without you know, the military swarming him. You know, it's going to be some bullshit where the president's going to say, I heard Fury and doesn't actually trust Rhodey in the next episode. I sure hope so, because like Nick Fury's like super spy prowess has been a little disappointing this series so far. At the scroll base, Gravik rounds up all of his officers and displays his disappointment of how bad, you know, the convoy attack went. Um, when his right hand questions why Gravik failed to not only kill the president, but also Nick Fury, Gravik kills him and sends his men after Fury's wife as he believes it was her fault for why the attack went wrong. So apparently Groot's been doing this shit wrong this entire time 
because I <laughs> Gravik just impaled this motherfucker. Um, so Matt, we really don't know shit about Gravik. Um, as far as like Marvel villains go, like his characterization has been so like paper thin. Like he feels really like one dimensional. Um, you know, but with that being said, like I was surprised like how quickly he kind of snapped here and, you know, went stark raving mad on one of his like more trusted soldiers. Um, because like we haven't seen any moments that would lead us to believe that he's starting to kind of like crack, right? No, there really hasn't been any moments to really show him like falling apart. He seemed like cool, calm and collected up until like this episode, really. I mean, he's definitely had an edge to him. But I can't imagine him like having such a loyal following if this is how he treats his like subordinates all the time. You know, I I can see it in the writer's room where they you know said, hey, you know, a tyrannical leader, you know, as soon as he kills his right hand, that's when he kind of starts to fail as, you know, the leader of this group. And I, I can see where they're going no, with I that. No, I see where they're going. But there needs to be the backstory but before it that. It just feels unearned, right? Like, you're right. Like, uh, yeah. Like, we need at least a couple scenes to see him starting to kind of, you know, break underneath the pressure or seeing his men at least question him. Because that's also something that kind of came out of left field is like, oh, okay, well, you know, not all of them are completely on board with the way he's going about things. Because um, then later on in the episode, we see like basically a coup happen. And that feels like it comes out of nowhere. I mean, yeah, it's a reaction to you know what graphic does here but like to me it just feels like once again we needed a couple more moments or a couple more scenes where we'd see his soldiers kind of questioning like his methods um but we we haven't gotten any of that everything you know in this episode just feels like it's happening way too fast after graphics men leave though he calls up roadie with a new plan to roadie's shock graphic wants to convince the president that the russians are working with the scrolls going as far to have roadie show the president where the base actually is knowing that a strike on russian soil will start world war three well i mean he's definitely a cold-hearted monster uh that's for sure we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago you know when breaking down the series I really just assumed we would see like a huge moment in Gravik's past that would at least let us in on what has made him, like what has motivated him um, to get to this point and like turn on the humans um, as hard as he has. Um, I'm just really disappointed that we haven't gotten that moment. And maybe, I mean, there, there's mm -hmm. still another episode left. So, you know, maybe they're saving that for last. But, you know, from what we find out in this episode, it, that seems like it's a recent development. You know, Gravik as a character has just been really disappointing because there's a lot of potential there. Um, it's just the writing's really done him no favors. And I don't know if that's just a question of, like, you know, the episode count. Uh, and runtime, but it just, you know, you know, Marvel lately has been doing a much better job compared to the past with their villains. Um, I mean, even a villain that wasn't necessarily universally loved, like um, Flag Smasher from um, uh, Falcon of the Winter Soldier, 
had more depth than what we're getting here with Gravik. Because we at least understood her motives, um, right or wrong. But here, like, yeah, we understand that he resents Fury, but what has caused his turn? And, like, has he always been this big of a monster? And Fury's never recognized it? Because I can't imagine Fury knowing all this, like, seeing how full of angst you know, Gravik is and, you know, seeing how bloodthirsty he is that he would, you know, then go ahead and entrust Gravik on any mission, especially the one that we find out that, you know, he was on later on in the episode. And I'm guessing that's kind of part of this story is Fury's like arrogance. But you gotta, you gotta give me more, you know, hmm. as an audience member. Like, I, I, I need to at least know the villain's motives and what has got him to this place. But for me, it's kind of a situation of like, show me, don't tell me. Like, I really wish they would have shown us like Gravik, like Brick Bad um, to get to this place. Rhodey, once he gets to the hospital, is of course immediately assaulted by Nick Fury. Of course, Rhodey lets Fury know that he has actually already leaked the footage of Gravik as him killing Maria Hill. Instead of killing Rhodes, though, Nick Fury leaves him with a message that he's coming for Gravik. Now, with all my nitpicks aside, like, I love seeing these two actors work together. I mean, yeah, the plot's not necessarily the best, but I mean, they're killing it regardless. Uh, I'm a little surprised that Rhodey would just allow Fury to, you know, run out of the hospital and not have his men chase after him, but it is what it is. I just feel like even if the, you know, footage is being put out there, why didn't he just shoot Rhodes? I mean, I know he'd have other agents come down on him, but Nick Fury could escape that situation. Well, he's in a tight hallway with a bunch of people with guns pointed at him. I mean, that's well, what I'm saying about cool him. Hallway fight. <laughs> he's like 75 <laughs> years old, Christian. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, but that's why I'm questioning, like, how, like, why would Rhodey even allow him to escape? He's obviously outnumbered. Like, <laughs> you at least send your guys after him. But, and I guess this kind of goes back to. Uh, the complaint of Gravik's men, like, why do you keep on allowing Fury to escape? And I guess part of that could be, like, Gravik wanting Fury to see what he's caused, you know, due to his neglect and his broken promises. Um, but otherwise, I mean, they're kind of right. Like, you do keep on allowing him to escape, especially <laughs> when you could go all, like, Groot on him, you know, and just impale him. So... I mean, the fact that we have to keep on coming up with our own headcanon um, to kind of rationalize what's going on in the story is definitely not a good sign. Sonya, who we know is on her own hunt for scrolls, proceeds to visit the head of the SIS, Director Warsbury, in which she immediately guns him down, quickly exposing him to the guards around him to being a scroll before they can actually apprehend her. She proceeds to then try to get the info about the scientists helping with the Super Scroll project. So Sonya is definitely a highlight of the series so far. Um, you know, she steals every scene that she's in. Um, maybe she needs to be the leader of S.H.I.E.L.D. Because um, she <laughs> she gets shit done. Um, no, I, I, I'm i loving the character. And like I said, I'm loving every scene that, you know, she's like been in. Yeah. And then again, to go back to what I said earlier about shooting Rhodes, the, like, are the guards with Rhodes also scrolls? I assume that because... This is that takes place right after um, the attempted assassination. So I'm guessing Rhodes followed Fury to the hospital. 
But, I mean, that's a big assumption, you're right. I'm sure it's more of a case of it being too big of a leap of faith for Fury, you know, to shoot Rhodes there. You know, not knowing whether or not those guys are with Rhodes. Because, mm. you know, even if they are, you're you're hoping that, you know, seeing Rhodes as a scroll then would obviously alert the president of what the hell's going on. That we've got like a deep state conspiracy happening here with this invading alien, you know, race. But, you know, that's a huge leap of faith. I don't know. I just feel like Sonya was just outdoing Nick Fury this whole Definitely episode. Definitely this scene, right? <laughs> Pretty fucking badass. Our new recruit that was introduced at the beginning of the season, Beto, comes to Gravik with concerns, claiming his men are a little scared of what's going on, especially after seeing Gravik's right hand getting killed. Gravik waves this off as he takes a call from Rhodes, confirming their plan is in motion, but Gravik is in for a bit of a rude surprise as his lieutenants attempt a coup, only for them to all get slaughtered by the now super scroll abilities of Gravik. So before this scene takes place, um, and I already talked about my issues with this scene, so I won't rehash those but i was half expecting to find out that this dude was actually like talos or something because they did a couple sh like long shots with you know him kind of looking on suspiciously in the background so i was like oh are they about to reveal that you know it's someone working on the inside with fury um because they did make a point to like you know kind of showing us his journey into joining gravix you know cause so but apparently that's all for not that it was just leading to this moment here. Um, he has probable cause, you know, what uh, Gaia is supposedly dead for him. And, you know, she brought him in and then like everyone else is starting to get killed around well, him. Well, they so all maybe jumped just, him you know, too. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do put a bag <laughs> over his head and try to take him out. So I was just, once again, surprised how fast everything escalated because they're all like uh -huh. loyal followers. And then all of a sudden they're not um you know after one failed mission so i don't know i don't know it, like i said like once again like all this feels like it's happening way too quickly like we didn't get any scenes here and there with like his followers kind of questioning him and now we're seeing them like try to pull like a, a coup to take him out it's just everything feels like it's happening once again a little too fast and it just it feels so unearned Fury returns to his original hiding spot for the scrolls back in the 90s, where he finds Gaia waiting for him there. After telling the tale of the place being a former hideaway for refugees, Fury attempts to console Gaia over her father's death, but she's just not having any of that after recalling her last conversation with Talos being on how he would lose. But Fury claims that Talos didn't lose at all, only chose the harder path here. Fury then has Gaia tell him what DNA was used for the Super Scroll program that revived you know, her. Gaia tells him about Extremis and Groot's DNA, but also informs him that Gravik was going after something called the Harvest, which Fury seems to know what it is almost immediately. Not much longer though, police sirens can be heard approaching the facility, and Fury sends Gaia to his wife to help her bury her father. So, like, the first couple episodes, they did a really good job of establishing Fury and Talos's relationship. So I was really expecting, mm. you know, in this episode, we'd get a moment where we'd see Fury really mourning Talos. But here, we just have him, like, consoling Gaia, which is fine, but you would just think that'd be more of a case of them, like, consoling each other. And at some point in this episode, I don't know if it's in the scene, but he does mention, like, not letting these deaths kind of, like, getting in the way of, you know, the mission at hand. Um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. 
but I don't know, man. Like, it, it feels like he's already forgotten fucking Maria Hill's dad. <laughs> and now we have Talos dad. It just, I just hope that it, it means something in the long run. Because right now, it just feels like a, a huge waste. Let alone the fact that he sends Gaia to his wife's house, who he should know is probably <laughs> like public enemy number one for the scrolls. Uh, since, you know, she just betrayed them. <laughs> so you're kind of setting up Gaia here. We cut back to Sonya, who then visits Dr. Dalton, immediately calling both the scrolls there out for being aliens. Sonya has members of the SIS quickly outgun Dalton and her partner, uh, Victor, and Sonya goes on to convince the doctor, you know, it's better to help her than to die for Gravik. But Victor tries to take Dalton hostage, claiming if she does help, he will kill her for Gravik. However, the never faced Sonya wastes no time in killing Victor before he can do anything. Gaia then arrives at Priscilla and Fury's home, asking Priscilla to, you know, help bury her father. A little later on in the show, we do see them put a funeral pyre together for Talos. While Gaia believes her father deserved more, Priscilla is quick to remind her that, you know, he wasn't all that much for pageantry. Priscilla then recites a scroll prayer as the both of them burn his remains. So I thought this was a strong moment for both characters. Um, I'm glad that we're not done with Fury's wife's story because I was a little concerned about that last episode with, you know, how things played out. And at least someone is mourning Talos. I do like how, like, almost every um, sci-fi or, like, alien race does a funeral pyre. Like a Viking funeral, right? And... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've seen it in Star Wars, right? Yes. <laughs> So how the Jedi get it? Right, quite God, right? Meanwhile, Rhodes goes through with Gravik's plan, as when the president wakes up, they inform the president that the Russians are working with the scrolls. At the same time, Gravik calls Fury, and Fury already knows what this is about. Gravik wants the harvest. But still, Gravik proposes a trade to bring him the harvest there and prevent World War III from happening. Which is when we also find out that Fury is hopping onto a plane to Finland via travel by Mason, who we saw help Black Widow get around in the Black Widow film. So I had no clue who the hell this guy was. Like, the entire time I was like, I feel like he's somebody. <laughs> but it wasn't until I, like, actually jumped on Twitter that I figured out who he actually was. Um, very random. You know, but cool. I like, I love little Easter eggs like that, you know, continuity wise. Mm. Um, I forgot though that he used to be a, a shield agent. For some reason, I thought he was just some dude that <laughs> Natasha was using. So, but okay. Back at Priscilla's, Gaia asks why Priscilla, you know, remains home for her execution. But Priscilla states, you know, she chooses to stay because this was the home she loved with Fury. She recalls having to convince Fury to get a place of their own, even with his lifestyle, you know, being a super spy. And when she found this place, she knew it would be perfect for them because it had everything Fury loved, you know, privacy, security, and natural light. Gaia then takes a shot at their love when, you know, she questions if Priscilla was ever able to be in her own skin around him. Priscilla takes offense to this, but goes on to explain that if she is to face execution, she'd rather it be here in the place where she was the most happy but even as those words escape her mouth gunfire starts flying through the home i honestly couldn't imagine uh fury settling down for the house i was surprised that you know she was able to convince him to do this um and like the whole i, I like i like the moment you know she's talking about like you know getting to see him you know in this you know in his like own kind of space here real reading and everything um 
but I just can't imagine it myself um, trying to picture the character in that situation. Like Fury actually like relaxing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'm glad that we had this moment to kind of like paint a different picture of Fury. All right, before we move on, I'm happy to announce we have a brand new partner this month, AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Let me tell you, once I turned 40, I started to fall apart. So I was literally trying everything to help me hold it together. But I was getting tired of taking so many supplements and I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day. I wanted better gut health, a boost in energy and immune system support but I hated taking vitamins every single day and I wanted a supplement that actually tasted great. And that's when I discovered AG1. I've started drinking AG1 every morning before starting my day and it genuinely feels like I'm doing something good for my body, especially as a gamer trying to be more active. It feels like I'm finally giving my body the nutrition it craves. Plus, I found it difficult trying to keep up with other routines due to them having several different products involved. But AG1 replaces your multivitamin Vitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. Since I've been drinking H1, I've noticed an overall feeling of health. I'm no longer too exhausted after work to play with my daughter or help her with her homework. AG1's helped boost my energy, help my focus and mental clarity, and even help improve my digestion. And that's all due to its science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. AG1 helps you build your health foundation first. Why take a bunch of different things when you can just mix one scoop of powder in water once a day? AG1 was designed with ease in mind so you can live healthier and better without having to complicate your routine. And what I love about AG1 is that it's delivered to me every month, so it's been super easy to make it a daily habit. I also get the single serving AG1 travel packs, so I never have to miss a day. I just mix the powder into ice cold water and drink it first thing every morning, and that's it. With AG1, taking good care of your body every day is really that simple. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is head over to drinkag1.com slash nerdshow. Once again, to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase, all you have to do is go to drinkag1.com slash nerdshow. That's drinkag1.com slash nerdshow and check it out. And now back to our breakdown. Guy and Priscilla make their way to an herb garden in the house where Priscilla and Fury have stashed a bunch of weapons. The two proceed to do battle with the scroll invaders, working well together and taking out each one. Later, Priscilla drives Gaia to an unknown location and they go their separate ways. Did they ever establish if Gaia has worked with Fury directly? No, I don't think he's she's done any actual missions for him. Okay. As far as I'm aware. Because she, I mean, she seems like a highly trained like soldier though so that's why mm -hmm. i was kind of surprised i was like oh okay but i mean obviously she's working with you know gravic so she must be you know somehow skilled um you know and i guess you know her father's a general so exactly i mean i wouldn't be surprised if talos had sent her on missions and stuff but you know we didn't we never got to see or hear about that at least i don't even remember honestly like how many other siblings there were yeah i don't remember it, uh, did she have brothers yeah, and sisters? Yeah, I believe so, or... right? Wasn't there a, like a... Oh, okay. I could be wrong. 
I, I guess I'm going to have to go back and watch Captain Marvel. <laughs> Using a Widow's Veil mask, Fury sneaks into Finland and meets up with Sonya. Fury divulges Gravik's plan, informing her that not only is Rhodes a scroll, but Gravik is threatening to destroy New Scrollos as a leverage as Fury will have to hand over the harvest, saving not only the scrolls there, but the humans that they have trapped inside and, you know, preventing World War III, of course. Sonya goes on to ask what actually is the harvest, in which Fury explains he sent in scrolls after the battle in Endgame and had them actually collect all the hero's DNA that was there, which was pretty much every hero in the MCU. Sonya then asks, you know, the million dollar question as to why Fury hasn't, you know, called in any heroes, in which his answer is that this is a personal matter. Humankind has been too dependent on heroes to save them, and that he needs to do this on his own, not only for himself, but for his wife, revealing that Priscilla was also a scroll. What? <laughs> That's fucking asinine. Like, <laughs> an incredibly selfish <laughs> fury. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, now, I will say, like, the moment we got before this explanation on why he wasn't, you know, calling the Avengers gave me some hope. You know, like the whole idea behind the harvest being, you know, Fury collecting the Avengers DNA and the fact that, you know, Gravik was actually one of those people, you know, helping Fury collect this DNA. Like, in my mind, started to feel like the, you know, the real explanation on why Fury wouldn't want to reach out to the Avengers because they would find out that he, you know, did this awful thing of, you know, collecting their DNA for God knows what, um, you know, behind their backs after like this battle to save the universe. I mean, it all very much feels like a Justice League story arc, and I'm not the only one to point this out, um, from the late 90s, I believe, by Mark Wade, where uh, the Justice League finds out that Batman has, like, he has, like, secret plans on how to take out and kill all of the Justice League, just in case they turn. And then Rayshad Ghoul gets his hands on this information and the shit hits the fan. I believe the Justice League kicks Batman off the team. Um, so it, it just, it, it felt like, you know, the missing piece of the puzzle for this series. Uh, because, you know, for me, that's been kind of like the fundamental flaw, you know, with everything that's been happening so far. Um, and I really do appreciate Sonya, like, calling Fury out and saying this. So this shit's all your fault, huh? Um, but then we get this, like, half-ass explanation from Fury. You know, stating, you know, oh, I have to do this on my own. We can't keep on relying on these heroes. And it's kind of like, uh, yeah, we can, Fury. Like, we... <laughs> <laughs> You've kind of made a living so far, you know, doing this and relying on others. So why would, like, the fate of the, the world be any different here? Like, why is this situation any different? And I guess, like, him learning his lessons from, you know, from these past mistakes maybe is supposed to be part of his motivation, but it just doesn't work when, like, you know, millions of lives are at stake. And I'm sure, like, for the finale, there's going to be some great moment where, you know, Fury's actually been 10 steps ahead this whole time and they'll they'll do some big reveal there as far as him being like i can't bring any superheroes in it, it just made zero sense at the moment especially when the world is at stake um 
I, I knew while watching that moment, I was like, oh, Damon's, Damon's fuming right now. Because <laughs> for a brief moment, I was like, oh, okay, finally. You know, uh-huh. I was... I was like, oh, my wishes are being answered. You know, they're going to give, like, an actual, like, you know, rational answer to, like, why, you know, why he would be calling the Avengers in, at this, you know, at this moment in time when they're on the cusp of World War III. Uh, and then just like that, they just flushed it right down the toilet. Like, you know, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I... It feels like Sonya would have called him out, too, at that moment. Like, no, well, I'm going to oh, call yeah. the Avengers then. Fuck you. Even the, like, former S.H.I.E.L.D. members or people like that that have been loyal to him. Why isn't he using any of those resources right. throughout this series? Exactly. I- <laughs> right. I mean, we. I mean, I guess we got a little bit of that with, you know, him calling in um, Natasha's friend from Black Widow. But you would think he would have, like, an army of operatives working for him Mm -hmm. and we do you know at the end see him you know hop on the phone and call someone but we'll talk about that later but not to harp on this too much you know they just they bit off more than they could chew story-wise it feels like where i'm just like really struggling to suspend my disbelief here that he wouldn't be utilizing all the resources that he has at his fingertips um it just it it doesn't make any sense because once again like if he would have said I can't let the Avengers know about the harvest because they'll see it as too big of a betrayal and that could end up disbanding the team. I could I could make sense of that. I could work with that at least. But to turn around and say, no, I have to do this on my own, you know, and even with the writers really trying to paint a picture of, you know, Fury manipulating, using people for his entire career as a spy. To me, it's like, that's what a fucking spy does. And, you know, we all know that's what Fury does. So, I mean, crisis of conscience, you know, at this point. Especially when, once again, the fate of, like, the free world is at stake. After this, Fury then collects the harvest as he plans to actually give it to Gravik for some reason. And then goes into a crypt where he starts to collect all of his old belongings and suits up, eye patch and all, before calling someone and saying it's time as our episode comes to a close. I did pop for the trench coat, too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like is that some, like, Inspector Gadget type shit? Like, does he, like... <laughs> I guess. Do you think he has, like, trench coats and eye patches, like, stashed at all these, like, safe houses around the world? Just yes, in case? Yes, I do. <laughs> I love that it's like his Iron Man sequence that he puts on a trench coat and an eye patch. That's what it felt like. I was like, all right, he's ready to go. Like, he better have some kind of weapons up those sleeves, you know. But speaking uh-huh. of which, he obviously has some kind of trick up his sleeve. You know, he's not just going to hand mm-hmm. over, you know, the, the harvest to uh, Gravik, you know, willingly without having a plan in place. Um, you know, a lot of people are excited about who he could possibly be on the phone with. And I get it, but I'm not getting my hopes up too high. I would love for it to be Captain America and the Winter Soldier, um, but I doubt it. Um, Although it does feel like these events are going to lead directly into like Captain America 4 and the Thunderbolts. Like I'm sure, you know, Valentina is going to use this as an opportunity to, you know, have her team take front and center. And source material wise, you know, which is, you know, the secret invasion event in the comics, that's kind of like what happens in the story like you know because of the events of secret invasion we see norman osborne take over 
shield basically he changes the name i believe to sword and then you know starts his own avengers team so which is an offshoot of what the thunderbolts used to be so i mean it all adds up in the long run but with that being said i still don't foresee this like big surprise cameo happening in the finale because honestly like with how low the ratings have been for this series i feel like marvel would have found a way to leak that at this point Mm. And we really haven't heard anything. So, um, you know, and maybe they're hoping that, you know, once it does take place, like, you know, that it gets people talking and people will then go back and watch the series. Uh, but I don't know exactly how streaming ratings work. Um, it just feels like that they would have found a way to leak that to kind of like, you know, drum up interest at this point. I mean, I'm under the assumption that it's going to be Maria Hill. Like she had like a vest on yeah. or something underneath and the bullet didn't actually kill or her. Or it was like a scroll uh, with a vest on the entire time that, you know, that, yeah. you know, he, he basically planned all this. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily understand his motive since Rhodey's using Maria Hill to like blackmail him, but whatever. Like I could see that happening. But it'd be an easy route. Like I, I've been sitting here this whole time waiting for the president to die because we do know that Harrison Ford is supposed to be taking over that role. Uh, but I, I could see an easy opportunity where if Nick Fury doesn't necessarily save the president in the last episode, that there's a power vacuum with, you know, Fury not actually getting his job back. And that's a great way to have, you know, Valentina kind of step into that role if she wanted well, to. Well, I don't like technically, I don't even know what Fury's position is with the government anymore, because, I mean, I think on paper, on paper he's dead, I think. <laughs> so, um, you know, because the shield's no more. Uh, so, yeah, mm -hmm. like, I, I mean, who's to say that Valentina isn't like higher ranking? So when it comes to like the logistics of it all, I, I'm definitely confused. But I mean, I think you're right. Like, it doesn't even necessarily have to be the president dying. It could just be like, you know, the American people seeing this situation and voting him out of office and, you know, Thunderbolt Ross taking advantage of it. But I mean, regardless of what goes down, I hope that they can stick the landing and at least salvage, you know, the series for me, because, man, I mean, I if we weren't doing this podcast, I don't know if I'd be able to continue <laughs> <laughs> watching this i mean even with just one more episode you don't think you Chris, i don't know if i would have gotten to this episode honestly so oh, it's okay. just wow. i don't know man it's too much of a stretch for me um like i love the performances and there's been some fantastic moments but but once again i and i feel like i'm beating a dead horse i just feel like the series itself is so fundamentally flawed that it's just I don't know. It's too much of a stretch for me logically to enjoy the story that they're giving us. Um, and I'm, I mean, I, I try to be positive, so I apologize. <laughs> and usually I could find some enjoyment, you know, out of all these like, you know, MCU and, you know, Star Wars, you know, shows. But, ah, man, I don't, I just, I just don't get what they were thinking here. And we found out this week, and this is just a rumor, this hasn't been confirmed, I don't believe. But we found out that they, they spent over $200 million on this series. And my question is, like, where the fuck did the money go? Like, we're not even seeing these scrolls actually, like, transform. You know, like, we've seen, like, one or two transformations. Like, they're, they're using, like, old fucking, like, wolfman techniques to like yeah. 
you know, show like these like scrolls become humans and vice versa. You know, where they like, you know, walk behind a pillar and then change and then, you know, come out a different person. So like, where's all the money going to? And I know it's like, you know, a, a six episode series, but $200 million? Because it just feels like it's a lot of talking heads. Well, I mean, let's just say Sam got a really good uh, paycheck. <laughs> he didn't get that good of a paycheck. I mean, Sam makes a lot, but I can't imagine them, you know, cutting him a check that big. <laughs> I mean, maybe they saved it all for the finale, right? <laughs> and we're about to get Endgame, right? Like, but I definitely have my doubts. But with that being said, you know, join us next week as we break down the finale of Secret Invasion. Yes, and give our final review for it. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. This is a public service announcement. Manscaped now has beer products and is going even further with their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Go ahead and tell the world the leaders in below the waist grooming are traveling north of your South Pole with their revolutionary grooming products. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using our code 20NERDSHOW for 20% off plus free shipping. Listeners know that there's no one I trust more with my nutsack than Manscaped. So why not trust them with my beard also? So allow me to introduce you to the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It's the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever to craft your signature look. It all starts with the cordless electric beard hedger. The beard hedger is tough on hair, but smooth on your face, leading to single stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time, just like your mother. <laughs> this waterproof cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths, all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. The Pro Kit also comes with four dermatologist tested formulations for your post-trim care. This includes Manscaped's beard shampoo and conditioner, beard oil, and beard balm to moisturize, style, and shimmer your new beard. Plus, the kit has three gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors. So with a nice beard, your face is perfectly groomed, right? Wrong! You need to keep an eye out for those tough-to-trim ear and nose hairs. The brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 offers improved blades and skin-safe technology with virtually no tugging. It's never been so painless to mind your manholes. Now that you have your face looking great, you must try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 for the full body grooming experience. Good news though, the Performance Package 4.0 now comes with the Weed Whacker 2.0 and all the other below-the-waist grooming products Manscaped is known for. Your significant other will be delighted to see you covering all bases, if you know what I mean. So listeners, get 20% off and free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and make sure to use our code 20NerdShow. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. All right, this week in game, we've got a couple stories, one being a potential leak for Resident Evil 9 as Dusk Gollum, who has leaked some info in the past for Resident Evil, um, went to Reddit this week claiming that Capcom will be announcing Resident Evil 9 for a 2025 release window. Dusk also went on to say that Capcom is announcing other titles coming in fall of 2024, but did not say exactly if they're Resident Evil related or any other Capcom franchises. 
So while this is a Reddit story and, you know, to take that as it may, it also makes a whole lot of sense that Capcom would continue to push more Resident Evil releases with all of the, you know, Resident Evil titles doing so well in the you know most recent years. Where they're taking the game next, I don't know. There's been rumors all over the place about like skinwalkers and different, you know, abilities and such. Um, I don't know if they're going to take a departure from the first person experience. You know, it has been working so well for them that they might want to stick with a first person game and maybe just give the option like they have been with DLC to do it in third person. I'm also not sure if I would want to continue on with Ethan's daughter or not, or if they would want to go a different direction, but we'll have to wait and see. I don't know if they're going to bring any more, um, you know, legacy characters back either because they've had such success in doing a story that really didn't involve any of those characters outside of Chris. And I feel like I don't need them to necessarily stick too much to the overall lore of the Resident Evil world as it did get uh, pretty messy around six. So I've been enjoying this direction that they've taken Resident Evil. But yeah, hopefully we get that announcement soon so that we can you know get a little bit more clearer idea of where this might be going. But other than that, we had a update for Star Wars Outlaws as creative director Julian Garrity dropped some details on the scale of the game, calling the handcrafted planets massive and going on record saying one planet could be up to, you know, two or three zones in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. They are really going for this kind of journey feel, whether you were on foot or on a speeder. They made sure to also, you know, comment that nothing is procedurally generated like we'll see in Starfield. So hopefully that means that all these planets are chock full of, you know, fun details and that they've really, you know, packed these things to the brim. As, you know, Star Wars planets have always been pretty populated. I mean, I will say that the more recent Assassin's Creed games from what I've seen have had some impressive depth to their level design. And it will be interesting to see that in you know more of a space game setting like Star Wars Outlaws. Um, the game is still set for a 2024 release at this time. But something coming even sooner than that is the highly anticipated Marvel Spider-Man 2, which dropped a story trailer this week during San Diego Comic-Con, featuring you know our first look at Harry Osborn, in fact. He's out of the tube that we saw him in the last game and is looking to change the world, which we hear not only him say once, but also hear Venom say by the end of the trailer. One of the main working theories is that Harry will be Venom in the game since the developers came out and said Eddie Brock would not be Venom. One thing I never really noticed about, you know, his appearance in the tube was apparently it looks like the symbiote is actually in there helping keep him alive. So that also really helps, you know, the theory that if he does get healed, he would become Venom. But at the same time, there's a lot of footage and glimpses that we get of both Harry and Norman that made me feel a little bit more like they're going the Green Goblin route with the character and maybe him being Venom is a red herring, especially with the way that they had, you know, both characters say the line in this trailer. Perhaps Harry as Goblin ends up teaming up with whoever is Venom instead. Um, I have been seeing some people actually speculate that maybe it's, you know, Peter fully succumbing to the symbiote and ends up you know, going full villain in which you'll probably have to play as Miles to stop the two of them, which would be an interesting angle to take the game. But I'm not sure they want to end this story with you not finishing it out as Pete. Speaking of Miles, with the game actually taking place about 10 months after his spinoff title, apparently he will be around 17 to 18 years old at this time and applying for colleges. Uh, we will see Miles confront Mr. Negative here, as we see in the trailer. Uh, Miles very menacingly comes up after him, which at the time he's non-powered uh, Mr. Lee. He's just in his you know regular human form. Um, clearly, there are some unresolved feelings here for Miles as Mr. Negative is responsible for his father's death in this universe. 
So with Miles not only dealing with Pete and the Venom suit, we'll see if there's any negative feelings of his own that he has to overcome. We also get glimpses of what seems like the origins of this symbiote landing on Earth, confirming that they are sticking with the alien origin, along with seeing the actual Venom suit um, for Spider-Man reacting to loud sounds coming from the lizard. Another storyline from the first game that I actually forgot about that was highlighted here comes from Detective Yuri, who, after seeing a lot of her colleagues die during the DLC, has turned evil and or anti-hero, becoming Wraith, as she does in Marvel Comics. And of course, we do get more footage of Kraven, you know, on his hunt here. So with, you know, two Spider-Man and a whole lot of villains, this story is coming out to be just as big or even bigger than the first title. And I just couldn't be more excited for it coming this October. If you have any wild theories on who may be Venom in this game, let us know on social media at Amazing Nerd Show or at Amazing Nerd Live, where I post all the updates for the streaming side of the show. This weekend, I will be officially back on um, streaming. Last weekend, I had to take a break just because of all the birthdays and stuff that was going on there just wasn't enough time to get in a good you know full stream for you guys but i will be making it up to you guys with a bit of longer streams of this weekend um saturday is kind of up in the air though right now because i have to work during the day and it might be a night stream but i also have to you know take my girlfriend to a concert that night i have to drop her off and then pick her up later so we'll see if there's enough time in between then there should be but we'll see if there's enough time for like a two to three hour you know, stream at night uh, but Sunday's a definite. I will be live then, and we'll be trying to get in uh, a couple streams, with extra streams, I should say, with uh, Victor as well, our good friend. So make sure to check all that out. Um, we'll be continuing our playthroughs of AEW Fight Forever along with Horizon Forbidden West. So join us live on Twitch this weekend for even more amazing nerd show fun. But with that said, let's go ahead and move on to wrestling. Oh, is not done with Mox. I don't think so. Bush uh -huh. is looking like the MVP of this match so far, guys. The nose! So present to the bed of nails by Kota Ibushi! All right, Christian, so it was another pretty eventful week for AEW. Uh, we had a fantastic episode of Collision, uh, which saw one of the best tag team matches I've ever seen um, go fucking 58 minutes, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and this is after a fantastic uh, blind, not blind eliminator. What the hell are they calling it? Elimination match or whatever for the number one contendership. Just a regular eliminator. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, last week between the two teams. Uh, but, you know, they followed that up with an even better match somehow. Um, I thought this was a fantastic match. Extremely, like, well-paced. Um, both teams, you know, were working their asses off. Like, you know, I mean, it it was slow in the very beginning, but like at a certain point, like, you know, after the first fall, like, you know, they put their foot on the gas and, you know, they kept it there for the duration of the match. Um, and they had the crowd just eating out of their hands, including me, because I mean, there were moments where I really thought, you know, the Bullet Club was going to pull off, you know, a, a title win here. Uh, but that wasn't the case. But with that being said, I feel like this feud has really gotten like that faction over uh, now. Um, mm -hmm. Like they feel big time. Jay White feels like, you know, a main event player. Um, you know, they, they made sure to protect him too in this match. They had Juice eat both of the pins. Um, you know, they got all their Bret Hart spots in. <laughs> <laughs> uh i gotta say like the production crew too did a fantastic job um like the power and glory um finish that you know ftr does they shot that thing so beautifully 
Um, you know, I'm enjoying the camera work a lot more on Collision than I, you know, am on Dynamite. It just feels smoother overall. Um, you know, like I feel like they're not missing as much. And that could be kind of like because of the style that, you know, they're working like it, it's less of that kind of like high flying style, at least what we've seen on the show so far. Um, compared to like, you know, dynamite, like we're not having these big fucking like circus party matches that we get mm-hmm. on dynamite. So, um, it's a little more grounded, I, I guess I'm trying to say, um, you know, not that, you know, I, I don't know if that's necessarily by choice. Um, we do know that I guess CM Punk had like a big like team meeting, uh, with the collision locker room at some point, uh, since the show is, you know, since the show's started, um, you know, talking about like, you know, them trying to differentiate themselves compared to Dynamite. So maybe it is a choice that they're making. But regardless, like, I'm enjoying it. I like the fact that Collision feels different than Dynamite on, you know, a weekly basis so far. Um, I, w- I do have to complain that there was way too many sharpshooters. I, I get it. I know what they're going for. It's the finals doing. of the Owen Cup. They're in fucking Canada. I, I was like, motherfuckers, every match, we know every match is going to have some type of, you know, heart, you know, representation here on the show. We don't need 20 fucking sharpshooters in the first match. That's I, <laughs> fair enough. But I mean, I think it made sense for this match, knowing like how hardcore FTR is like with their love for, you know, Brett and everything i mm. like that jay was attempting to do it but he kind of he let it off though first by trying to super kick like doing a you know sweet chin music yes. uh, which got like the ire of the fans right away and then he you know did the sharpshooter which i felt like was a good like kind of setup you know to get him even more booze um you know from this you know canadian audience so i mean jay is such a great heel um you know he's not flashy at all he he does he feels like he's more in the vein of like Triple H, um, you know, just kind of like that ring general. It's it, like a lot of like psychological like warfare being played, um, which, you know, it it's a nice change of pace compared to the other hills that, you know, AEW has on the roster. So um, I feel like he's going to do nothing but like flourish, you know, here in the company. So um, because he brings something different to the table. Exactly. And that's what's great about having this second show is that I feel like they weren't, you know, he was barely on Dynamite when they had him there for a while. And this show has definitely allowed him to elevate to to another level. Well, speaking of which, I guess, you know, a lot of people are speculating one of the reasons why he didn't feel as featured as he should have been, you know, when he first debuted with the company is because I guess Tony Khan wasn't expecting to actually land him. Um, it it felt like, you know, it was a sure thing that he was going to WWE and then I guess WWE just kind of dropped the ball. Uh, so he just kind of landed in Khan's lap and he was like, okay, well, I guess I've got to figure out how to book him. (laughs) At least that's what the rumor is. Well, then Tony Khan needs to get better at booking on the fly. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we'll talk more about that later on. Um, but I agree. Uh, but moving on, um, in you know, once again, show note, we're only doing highlights for now on, you know, of AEW throughout the week, you know, just because we got the two shows to cover. So mm-hmm. um, highlights and maybe a few lowlights. Uh, but with that being said, moving on, because I do feel like Collision was pretty much a, a two match show. And I mean, part of that's because, you know, FTR and 
Bullet Club went 58 minutes. Um, but, you know, we had the main events uh, for the Owen Cup finals. Um, so I thought the match itself was okay. I can tell that Punk is still kind of getting the rust off. Um, but with that being said, I felt like he was able to help Ricky kind of get his groove back um, at the same time, if that makes any sense. Because uh, Starks has been just kind of like floundering, you know, at least to me over the past like couple months, um, you know, you know, in the ring, on the mic, he just feels off. But this is the first time in a long time where we're kind of seeing that potential on display that, you know, we've all been, you know, raving about over the past year. Um, you know, the, I mean, the match had its clunky moments here and there. But Stark really, you know, was able to bring out that charisma that he has just naturally and, you know, showcase it here. Um, like, I love when he walks the top rope and does his little strut and everything. Um, but, like, seeing Stark, you know, end up winning the match by cheating um, gleefully, uh, <laughs> I thought was pretty amazing. And it's something I didn't see coming. Because honestly, like character wise, it's not something that they've teased at all. Like we had, you know, kind of a weird like standoff between Starks and Punk last week at the end of the show where, you know, Starks came out, you know, at the top of the ramp and, you know, stared at Punk, you know, as he was celebrating his victory. But that was pretty much it. And I did like the fact that Punk was willing to put Starks over here. And it really shows you that the company's still invested in Starks. Um you know, to have Punk lose this early on in his return is a pretty big deal. So um, I don't know where they're taking the story. Um, like, I have a few ideas on where I'd like to see it go. But, but like, it feels like Punk has, like, multiple potential, like, feuds in the works um, happening all at once. So I don't know if he's going to be looking for revenge against Starks. I don't know if they pivot to Jay White. Um, and then you've got like Samoa Joe lurking in the background because last time we saw Joe, he was choking out Punk after the match. So um, there's a lot of different, you know, roads they can travel right now. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited that it, it feels a little unpredictable. But again, like if you told me that Punk was good, wasn't going to be the one that pulled the heel move at the end of the match, I, I tell you we were a liar at this mm -hmm. point because I was dead certain you know, it was going to be a low blow or something. Punk was going to do something to try and cheat to win. And I still thought Ricky was going to win the match, but I thought they were just trying to put him over as maybe like Collision's top babyface. You know, I thought that was kind of the direction that they were trying to go, but I have no idea where they go now See, I'm uh, with, with you. the heel Starks. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I thought Punk would probably, you know, possibly turn heel. But if mm. that happened, I don't feel I feel like Punk would have to win. Like you can't have him turn heel and then like mm. lose the match. Um, but, you know, I agree with you that, that it just felt like Punk has been kind of teetering that way this entire time, you know, since his return. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think Stark's being heel right now for this moment is, is more of the interesting choice. So, you know, I, I'm curious to see where they take it. Um, like, do you have him join the Bullet Club? Ooh. I mean, we did we did talk about that when they were, you know, when they were first, you know, looking for members and shit like that. And I, I think that'd be an interesting, you know, conclusion because um, they really haven't know. had a conclusion to their storyline. 
No, not at all. Right? Um, so, like, do we see, you know, Starks kind of tease this, like, he'll turn. Although, like, the way he treated Jushin Thunder like <laughs> at the end of this match <laughs> tells me he's already heel. But, you know, like, maybe you have Starks come out and apologize to Punk. And he accepts the apology. And then, you know, Starks stabs him in the back again and joins the Bullet Club. Like, you know, they team up at a tag or something like that. I mean, that sounds like a Bullet Club angle. That sounds yeah, like a, right? a join up that all of them come out and start beating up on him. And while I'm fantasy booking, <laughs> and then fucking have Hobbs join, too. You oh, know? you want Hobbs in oh, the Bullet Club? Oh, my God, huh? yes. Fucking Hobbs, Stark, <laughs> and Jay White, and Juice. I think that's a hell of a faction. You want, uh, speaking uh, of which, where the hell's their bad look? Fale, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with having some muscle. Um, but speaking of the faction, though, like where the hell's the guns been? I don't know, because they haven't really made much mention of them. You know, since since we've seen them, like since we saw them join, so it, it seems a little odd. Like I understand, mm. like maybe you don't want them out there during the tag match since it feels weird that like. The tag team of the group's not going after the belts, but you would think you would at least have some kind of like backstage interaction or something, you know. Um, so I hope it's not a case of like one of them being injured and, you know, Khan being weird about like mentioning it, you know, on you know screen because that does feel like a Tony Khan trope. Well, he doesn't like to disclose injuries for some reason. Um, because I mean, once hey, where the fuck's Wardlow? Like, last time we saw him, is it was him losing the belt to fucking Luchasaurus, and once again, like it's, it feels like every time Wardlow loses a match, he disappears for like two months. Um, you know, and I mean, I don't know if it's a case of him being injured or what, but storyline wise, it doesn't feel like a great choice, you know, for you know him to be home licking his wounds for this long. So it's just bizarre. Um, but anyway, I've really been enjoying Collision. Um, I'm curious to see if the roster expands because I do feel like they still need some star power on the show. But, you know, like I said, I, I like that it feels like something different compared to Dynamite. Um, I think that was important in establishing this new show. But anyway, moving on, uh, this past Wednesday on Dynamite, uh, we had the annual Blood and Guts events, because this is like our third Blood and Guts, right? Match I believe so. now, right? So um, it's pretty much an annual thing now, uh, which is cool. I'm, I'm down with that. I, I like the fact that they've all felt organic, you know, uh, you know, when they come about, like, it's not like, oh, it's, you know, July, it's time for Blood and Guts. Um, you know, we've got to put two factions in the cage. Mm -hmm. Who is it going to be? Because that's kind of what it's happens. Hell in a Cell every yes, year. exactly. Yeah. That's what Hell in the Cell feels like. And I, it sounds like Triple H is trying to get away from that, which I think is a smart move, though. So, because this year they didn't have a Hell in the Cell, like, event, like, uh, pay-per-view. So, um, it just makes more sense to have these gimmick matches feel like a natural conclusion to a feud. And that's exactly what this was. Uh, but before that, I did want to briefly bring up the Jungle Boy match uh, against Hook. Uh, we saw Jungle Boy debut, I guess, kind of his new character. Uh, he buried Jungle Boy in the desert. <laughs> we had another kind of hokey art film, uh, like to the point where I was wondering if Darby was behind the camera. <laughs> uh, we saw a limo come and pick up this new version of, you know, Jack Perry. And then we saw him walk down the ramp to some Beethoven, which um, I did, too. I kept I thought it was going to, like, go into like a remix or something, but 
it just didn't really fit the whole Hollywood look that he had going yeah. into the ring. I was like, I don't get this. Am I missing something? Because, uh, like, what does this have to do with the character? Like, what a strange choice. Um, Because, like, I was like, I don't feel like Beethoven's, like, heel music. Like, <laughs> so hopefully they come up with something else for him because I, I don't feel like it really works. But I did feel like Jungle Boy did a great job playing heel in this match. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was also impressed with Hook. Um, I thought they had some great sequences, you know, here and there. Like, Hook doesn't typically work, you know, matches this length. But, but I thought they, you know, they, they were able to pull it off. Um, I'm seeing a lot of growth in Hook, uh, especially when it comes to selling, because that, that's been kind of a weak spot in his game. Uh, but you're seeing a lot of growth. Um, you know, and that just, you know, once again, comes with experience. Cause I think the guy like literally had his first match on AEW TV, I believe. Um, so, I mean, and I, I totally forgot that he was undefeated. <laughs> so, I mean, he had to lose eventually. And I mean, it makes sense. Like, since this feels like it's going to be his first, like major feud in the company. Um, cause before this, it's really just been kind of like little one-off type deals. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I thought Jack really worked the crowd well, um, you know, much better than he can on the mic at this moment. So, you know, maybe less is more with him, you know, have him do most of his heel work in the ring and, and I wouldn't be opposed to, and I think we talked about this before, like having him paired with like Anna Jay as his mouthpiece or something like that. I wouldn't mind if he worked with, uh, Don Callis. I feel like that would be a good pairing for him. Yeah, and we know Don's putting together a family, supposedly. Mm. Which, uh, moving on, we did see him continue to court Chris Jericho. Um, Alex Marvez was spying on them in a restaurant. It was really weird and just felt yeah, like a huge waste of a segment. Um, I feel like this is all swerve still. I don't feel like Jericho is actually going to join Callis. I think Callis is actually trying to manipulate the situation to break up the JAS and maybe get like Sammy Guevara or like Dan- Daniel Garcia away from Jericho, like kind of poach his talent. And he's doing it by kind of like strumming up this like mistrust, you know, between the group and everything like that. Because week after week, we're seeing JAS become like resentful towards Jericho, um, you know, f- because like it's weird. He's, He's a heel who's turning heel. It's, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so I could kind of see this being like a con job, um, you know, and, and, and callous poaching, you know, Jericho's, you know, younger talent, which speaking of which we saw them face off against MJF and Adam Cole, my new favorite tag team. And I don't think there's any argument that they're probably the hottest tag team in the company at this point, uh, by far. Um, we had a couple weird vignettes with them which i don't know about you but i felt like we're probably the weaker of you know the batch that we've gotten so far yeah the spicy food one was i I could take it or leave it at this point it just felt like a weird setup uh like they could have just gone to the restaurant to talk strategy and then just end up getting drunk and you know double clotheslining the the waiter that would have been fine like it's just weird like oh i need you to overcome your fears like what what are you talking about fear of spicy food like i don't I, it was weird but everything we got from the match wise and the uh finals of the blind eliminator tag tournament i thought was absolute gold um you know before the match we found out that they 
got each other, you know, gifts, which were matching trunks and matching ring jackets. Uh, but, you know, Adam Cole had one more gift to give. And, you know, we find out that he came up with a mashup of both of their entrance musics, um, which MJF's reaction to was just amazing. <laughs> Uh, and the crowd popped huge for it also. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm loving every second of this. Um, you know, we had a dance-off to fucking start off the match. Yeah, maybe it went a little too long and maybe a little too far. But you know what? <laughs> As a lifelong WWE fan who's <laughs> suffered through many segments like this, I feel like the difference here is... We don't get this weekly from this company. So, but whatever. I mean, if you get it once every two years or so, it's a lot more effective. Um, I I just, I, I don't know, man. Like, it, it, it was, like, my jaw was on the floor the entire time because I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I wasn't understanding what was happening. Like, I, how did it even really start? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Garcia started doing his dance move and, you know, MJF did it back to him and then he did it back and forth. And then MJF went over to the sound person who conveniently happened to be by the timekeeper, uh, which they never are <laughs> uh-huh. usually. And he n- knew that if he pushed a single button, that disco music would play. <laughs> so so yeah, you gotta suspend some disbelief, but I'm I'm okay with that, you know, once in a while. That must have been the part that I missed because I look up and out of nowhere, MJF is just fucking it up in the middle of the ring. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I did find hilarious is like Sabby is like talented and skilled in the ring as he is. It, he I mean, he's someone who feels like he could do anything in the ring. One mm-hmm. thing he can't do is dance, apparently. Because, like, they were so off rhythm, it was insane. But they saved it. Like, they stuck the, the the landing at the end, especially with fucking Garcia putting his head between his legs and everything. I That was that was magical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and even the, the cold bit landed with base. So, I mean, yeah, it, it probably didn't need to go as long as it did, but I thought it was amazing. Um, and the match itself, I mean, they, once again... You know, like FTR and Bullet Club, you know, did they had the crowd really like eating out of the palm of their hands, um, you know, and they popped for everything. Like the double clothesline bit is so fucking over. And like the way that the crowd reacted when they finally hit it, you would think it was fucking Hogan, like slamming Andre. Like <laughs> it was it was electric. I, <laughs> I mean, the fact that they were chanting it like in the middle of the match, you know, prior mm-hmm. tells you all you really need to know. Oh, and I can't forget fucking MJF's dive, you know, and the way he reacted after he hit it. Like <laughs> he's already been online calling it the best dive in wrestling history. <laughs> uh, I mean, funny enough, like with all the hijinks and shit and just goofiness, it really felt like a Young Bucks like indie match to me. In this kind of like lovable villain who's trying to be a baby face. Um, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's really working. Like, work. I just feel like it's really clicking on all cylinders. Um, and, you know, they're teasing them breaking up. 
you know, already after, you know, their victory, they had Adam Cole, you know, do the whole like long lingering look at the title and, you know, MJF, of course, caught him doing it. But I feel like they're trying to subvert our expectations. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're teasing it, but I could foresee them actually being FTR for those titles. Um, Because right now, like, I feel like they've caught lightning in a bottle and they need to just go with it while they can. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, have Adam Cole be the one to actually, you know, turn heel in this situation. I don't know if you, you know, bring Roderick Strong in, if you have it be a faction against MJF. I mean, they really put the odds against him. They're having Strong look like a whiny fucking bitch, like with that fucking neck brace on and everything. like (laughs) (laughs) Trying to find Adam Cole and everything, just kind of pouting about it. But I think Cole turning heel would be the more interesting choice. Especially since, like, at this point, they've teased an MJF babyface turn a couple times. So they need to pull the trigger, Um, especially if he's like this over as this character, Um, you know, or you you keep them together until, you know, you can't anymore until it just doesn't make any sense. You know, you can you could get four or five months out of this easily. Um, you know, have them go on a run as, you know, tag team champions. And, you know, you could have in the meantime, MJF face off against other contenders um, and, you know, have them kind of questioning Cole's like motives and everything like that. And, you know, have a fun back and forth. Um, and then that's when you get like, you know, the turn, you know, the breakup, you know, of the team. Um, but like I would write the hot hand if I was aw right now mm-hmm. you've got something that's working and the crowd is loving so you know go with it but moving on uh we had the blood of guts match uh and it was a brutal affair uh <laughs> it definitely lived up to its namesake i will say right off the bat i feel like this was probably my favorite blood and guts match that we've gotten so far uh from the company um and i think that's because there was just a lot less gaga involved Mm-hmm. Um, with the story of this match and just, you know, the way they had the match set up, like we didn't spend a lot of time like outside of the cage or anything, you know, they were on the, the top of the cage, like maybe for a couple minutes at the most. And that was it. So, and honestly, I would have been fine if we didn't even have that spot. And I think overall it was probably like the best wrestled, you know, match, um, where, you know, we had a lot more spots set up and moments set up throughout the actual match where, like, at a certain point, like, those other matches just became absolute chaos, which, don't get me wrong, is what you want from a blood and guts match. But this was more like controlled chaos. Um, You know, everything felt like it mattered. Um, There wasn't, like, any, like, wasted time here and there. Like, there weren't moments where it felt like, you know, they were filling time, waiting to set something up. Um, Mm Because there was, was, like, like, the last two matches, like, I remember, like, them climbing up the cage and everyone in the ring kind of, like, stalling until they got, you know, whatever they were trying to do set up, up, you know, know, up above. So I did appreciate that. Yeah. I will say, like, I miss, you know, Brian Danielson being part of the match. I feel like he would have brought so much to it. Mm-hmm. Um, not that, you know, Pac didn't do a great job. And, you know, I understand why he was the match. I think my one issue, though, came from his story beats. 
um, you know, at the end where he just walks out of the match, you know, like he'd been kind of like going back and forth with Claudio and everything throughout. And finally he just had enough and then he left the cage. And like, to me, that feels like he's quitting, which is how you lose the match. And like right after that, like we had Takeshita walk out also. So I thought the match was going to end, but it continued. So I was kind of like scratching my head. Now the finish <laughs> came soon after, but I don't know. Like, I think I would much rather have something happen where, you know, he betrays the team and costs them, you know, the win um, without him like actually leaving. Because then like my other issue is it becomes five against three. And like your baby faces lose all sympathy at that point. So I don't know, you know, and like, and like I said, I guess that's kind of like nitpicking because it did only last a couple of minutes, I believe after that. So, um, but then my other major issue with the match is they missed the finish completely. They're yeah. choking out Wheeler, you know, with the chain and then the bell rings. And I was assuming he passed out or something, but then the announcers bring up that Moxley actually like threw in the white flag. Which I was like, oh, well, that would have been a huge moment to, like, pick up on camera. And they obviously... Yeah, to witness. <laughs> yeah, they obviously missed it completely because they didn't show us any kind of replay or anything. Nope. So it was, it was really bizarre. Because that also feels like a storyline that we're going to see play out in the future, too. Like, you know, between the BCC now. Um, but maybe not. We'll, we'll see. Now, I think the 500-pound gorilla in the room is Coda. Um, <laughs> not he, I mean, not to be, I mean, the dude has had gone through a lot over the last couple mm -hmm. of years and everything like that. And he's only wrestled a couple matches, I believe, but physically and performance wise, like he was just almost unrecognizable. And I wasn't like prepared for that whatsoever. Cause we didn't, we hadn't seen him on camera. Um, you know, and I didn't see his matches prior his, you know, the, the two matches he's had over the last couple of years mm. but i mean he's been injured so i'm sure he hasn't been able to like go to the gym as much as he'd like to but it feels like he's aged like 10 years over the last two um and i mean listen the guy's in his 40s and he, he looks phenomenal still <laughs> don't get me wrong but he looks a lot different and in the ring like he just wasn't as explosive as we're used to seeing you know um, like his kicks weren't landing and there was a lot of just like kind of like disjointed, almost like clunkiness to, you know, some of the things he was doing in the ring, like some of the spots that he was trying to pull off. Um, and he's working with a bunch of guys that he's never worked before. So, I mean, that might be part of it. And I don't know if there's a language barrier or not, but I mean, it just, he felt off overall. So that kind of took me out of the match almost. Well, yeah, I mean, you had full sequences where it's like he's supposed to have urgency and he's just slowly walks yeah. up to a wrestler and then kicks them and then slowly walks to the next one. Yeah, he definitely pulled the Jeff Hardy, like walking down yeah, to the ring was... and Omega's like, you know, like literally <laughs> like, the yes, ring. like about to be sacrificed by Moxley, <laughs> who was absolutely the MVP of this match. I mean, mm -hmm. Moxley is bleeding enough for everyone. First of all, in the ring, that was another thing that drove me a little nuts. Like Moxley came in the ring and just started stabbing everyone in the forehead with a fork and like no one drew blood. 
which I was like, wait, what the hell's going on? Am I watching WWE? Because that was the biggest, like, with, you know, with the War Games match in WWE, it always drives me nuts. Or any gimmick cage match in WWE. The fact that they have a no blood policy, you know, for me, it's like, what the fuck's the point of these matches then? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't, like, go into it and, you know, see someone getting their head raked up against the cage and, you know, not get any blood. It just just totally kills it for me. Uh, But then, like, to see Moxley stabbing people in the forehead and not, like, actually drawing blood, you know, was a little jarring. So I don't know what happened there. I, you know, because Kenny later on was bleeding from his forehead, but it was from another spot. And Hangman, I don't think bled at all, which is crazy, because Hangman, he'll fucking bleed on Rampage. Like, he bleeds almost as much as Moxley does. So I don't know what happened there. Um, But with that being said, I'm not a ghoul. Like, there was plenty of fucking blood in this match. <laughs> That just kind of threw me off. Um, I mean, maybe there was a miscommunication where they weren't supposed to like blade that early in the match yet. And maybe it just didn't happen. Something but. happened because I was like, why would you even bother with that spot? Mm-hmm. then? Because it's just going to cause attention to the fact that, you know, they're not bleeding. I, just like it's one of those matches where and all the wrestlers involved feel like they would not just blade, but actually get stabbed by the fork just for the match. sake. <laughs> You know, like they're they're the type of wrestlers that will make you believe it. Well, yeah, Paige and Kenny. I mean, we've seen them yeah. do it in the past. So I don't know so much the, about the Bucks, but I mean, the Bucks were bleeding. I mean, at least Nick was. So I mean, that did take me out of it. I mean, as long as like half of the wrestlers in like a blood and guts match are bleeding, I'm fine. But like, I don't want to get it to the point where we're you know WWE and like we're having blood and guts matches without any fucking blood. Mm-hmm. So, because we're definitely not getting no guts. one's getting disemboweled, you know, in the ring. I mean, I hope not, at least. I'm sure if Kingston had his way, that would happen. But yeah, you know, if they had kept listening to the crowd, it would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they wanted tables, they wanted them on fire, what they is, just kept going. What is the fascination with tables? Like, I, I don't, don't know. <laughs> like, they're literally getting this cornucopia of violence in the fucking ring. And this, this crowd has the nerve to chant for fucking tables. Now, they actually gave it to them. Which was uh, great. I'm wondering if they if that was going to be a spot anyway, because we have the, the the amazing spot with Pac, you know, hanging from the top of the ceiling and, you know, dropping, stopping. Um, who was it? One of the young bucks through the table. So, mm. I mean, so maybe they they were planning all along for tables. But uh, right after the crowd started chanting, they made sure to go ahead and grab those tables. But then they start chanting for fucking fire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It was like, you fucking monsters. What? Because <laughs> you can't just do fire on a whim. Like, you've got a plan for that uh-huh. shit. <laughs> this is, this would have been cool, though. It would have been. Don't get me wrong. I would have popped for it. But this is an ECW. So, um, uh-huh. you know, and even them, you know, they, they, they obviously plan for those spots. At least some of the time. So, uh, but. I mean, overall, I thought it was a great match. And regardless of my, you know, small little, you know, nitpicks, I was entertained the entire time. Um, And I'm glad that this feels like the final chapter in this story between the two factions. Um, Off camera, they actually had both groups shake hands, which I thought was an odd choice. But I mean, I'm guessing that's not something they're going to actually use on the show story wise. Uh Um but yeah, like, I'm wondering, like, you know, where does the elite go from here? You know, is Coda sticking around? Um, you know, what does this mean for BCC? Like, is Wheeler going to resent Moxley for throwing in the tile for him? 
Um, you know, or is it going to be vice versa? You know, are they going to turn on Wheeler now and see him as the weak link? Um, so, I mean, the, there's a lot of big question marks and, you know, I'm excited to see them get answered, but like part of me still can't help, but wonder like what this match would have looked like if, you know, Brian Danielson was involved, but I guess we'll never know. I mean, there's always another future, hopefully, uh, for him to be in the blood and guts match. So speaking of which, I guess he had surgery, um, right after his, right after the injury and actually like they had to actually put like a plate and screws in his arm. So he might be out for a while. Oh jeez. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's really unfortunate. So But show wise, that's pretty much it. Uh we did have a rumor making the rounds um that Tony Khan really didn't help any that uh Warner Brothers is interested in a third hour for dynamite. Uh when asked about this at uh the Ring of Honor press conference for the upcoming pay-per-view this Friday. Um and I forgot to mention too that it looks like Pac is going to be facing off against Claudio in the main event of you know, that pay-per-view, which, you know, makes sense. They needed someone, you know, to fill that role since Briscoe's injured now. So I guess this was really like killing, you know, two birds with one stone. But during that press conference, someone asked Khan about the rumor and he took a really long pregnant pause and said, oh, Mm. that's a really interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) And then he kind of like talked in circles around it. Um, but he definitely didn't deny it. So it must be something on the table um, right now uh, while they're negotiating the new contract. Uh, so AEW might look a lot different come, you know, this time next year, uh, you know, with them looking to up, you know, the pay-per-view schedule and now them possibly getting a third hour of Dynamite. I mean, woo, man. <laughs> There's already too much wrestling. Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you put that if you're supposed to watch Rampage as well, that's I mean, I mean, for six hours now of AEW a week, I would hope in I mean, this is a stretch. I would hope that if they end up agreeing to a third hour of Dynamite, that that means Rampage would go the wayside, you know, and it'd be a type of deal where like, you know, Raw back in the day, they had, you know, uh, Raw is War and then Warzone, where, you know, it was the same show, but they tried to split it up, like, and pretend it was, like, two different shows where you could have, like, that third uh-huh. hour be called Rampage, but it's really just Dynamite, you know, it's on the same day and everything like that, you know, it's something with the ratings, you know, for some reason that helps, but I don't know, we'll just have to wait and see, I guess, so, but there's a lot of change on the horizon for AEW, uh, which, once again, it's a good thing, I mean, it's growth, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a great thing, you know, that Warner Brothers wants more wrestling. Exactly, because it wasn't that long ago where, you know, there was tons of rumors and speculation that, you know, AEW might be in trouble. So it's awesome to hear that, you know, Warner wants so much of this product and is so invested in it. Well, that does it for this week. As a friendly reminder, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave a five-star review. It really helps new listeners to find the podcast and for us to continue to grow. Also, if you like the stories from this week's episode and want to keep up to date with the show, follow us on social media at Amazing Nerd Show or stop by the AmazingNerdShow.com. 
And hey, to support the show further and get additional weekly content, you can subscribe to us now on Patreon. Just follow the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to rep some nerd show swag, you can head over to tpublic.com to find t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd show swag as long as you live in the United States. All right, make sure to join us next week as we talk all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture and whatever's going on in the world of wrestling. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show.